Welcome to Good Chris Elfian Talks. I'm Levi. And I'm Chris. And I'm Brian. Thank you for joining us this week. On this podcast, we select one talk a week to help us get the Bible in our daily news feed. We post a new episode at the start of each week with a short intro beforehand to kind of set the stage for the talk you're about to listen to. And now, let's talk more about this week's talk. Welcome to the Good Christadelphian Talks podcast. This is Brother Brian. This week's talk was a class that was given by Brother Jim Stiles entitled, How the Gospels Present the Death of Jesus. And that's exactly what it's about. What makes it so memorable is the overlooked simplicity of what was actually said and written compared to the abundance of knowledge and detail that we have filled in the blanks with concerning the crucifixion of our Lord Jesus. To our credit, typical Christadelphian mode of Bible study, we look at just a few short verses or a singular statement, and through good Bible study, we pull out these amazing hidden gems and backstory and underlying themes. And to a large extent, the Word of God has been greatly amplified in our understanding by this deep dive way of dissection. The point that Brother Jim makes is that when we consider and examine the death of Christ, we're better served by appreciating the brevity and the matter-of-fact reporting that the Gospel writers preserve for us. So much of what we now think of and speak about when we discuss the death on the cross has been brought up by our own research into the method of crucifixion and all of its gruesome and gory details. There are whole movies and TV adaptations built just around the spectacle of torture that this sentence brought with it. But as Brother Jim reminds us time and again, that's not the point of what God and the gospel writers want us to focus on. It is the victory over sin and the obedience to God's will that is meant to be showcased. The lesson is about the victory that Christ accomplished and not about the punishment. The brutality of the crucifixion doesn't save us. That doesn't motivate us to be better disciples. It is the pride in the commitment of our Savior that we should dwell on, and the faith we have in our God to remove even the fear of death itself from our lives, so that we have no barrier to embrace His will fully in our transformation. Overall, it's a very powerful class that I found gets better the longer you listen, as Brother Jim builds on points that he makes early on about what we miss if we get too caught up in the death and forget the why. So as always, we hope this strengthens your faith and brightens your day. Brother Jim Stiles, How the Gospels Present the Death of Jesus. 
So what we're going to look at tonight is how the Gospels record, how they present the death of Jesus. And, uh, that may be something that you've looked at before, maybe, maybe you haven't. So what you find out is every Sunday morning when we come to meet, we are reminded that when we have the bread and the wine, that we are proclaiming the Lord's death. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. And it's similar to when Jesus spoke in John 6 at verse 53, and he said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. So this death that Jesus is talking about, this death has a power to change our lives. Because when we eat his flesh and drink his blood, we have eternal life. That doesn't mean immortality. That means the kind of life that is with God. That's the way Jesus and John used the word eternal life. And that's why they could say that you have eternal life abiding in you right now because it's a kind of life that will live forever. And this is part of what we are remembering. We proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. So that's what I'm going to look at tonight, is what is this Lord's death that he's talking about, uh, and how do the Gospels actually record it? So what I want you to look for as we're going through the Gospels, because uh, I'm going to string together a series of passages in all four Gospels going through the crucifixion and leading up to the crucifixion, but you watch in this how Jesus and his father are in this together all along. Jesus tells you right on right in the beginning in John 12, he's on his way to the father. He's not focused on the fact that he's going to be crucified. He's focused on the fact that he's on his way to his father. He completely trusts that God is in control. This is a key component of what it means uh, in remembering the death of Christ. And he tries to help and protect his followers. You're going to see that. And here he is facing the roughest night of his life in, in, in the trials and the crucifixion. And what he's doing is reaching out, trying to help others. You'll notice that when the Gospels record this, there is no mention at all about any anger, no vengeance coming from Jesus. No matter what people did to him, he doesn't get angry at them, and he doesn't want to extract vengeance on them. And he never allows the devil in himself to surface. He really does destroy the devil in himself. As, as Paul says in Hebrews 2, that he destroyed him who had the power of death. That is the devil. And Jesus totally agrees with God's decision. He declares God right in everything, that our nature really is rightly related to death because it is so prone to sin. So that even though he never sinned, he, he totally acknowledges that God is right to require him to go through this. And it's, it's sort of a, you know, a, it was foreshadowed back in Genesis with Abraham and Isaac when the record says a few times in Genesis 22 that the two of them went up together. And that's what's happening. That's what's recorded for us in the Gospels about the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. So if you just you follow up to you know, what's happening here before the crucifixion, you'll notice how focused Jesus was at the Last Supper when he was trying to help the disciples. In Luke 22, at verse 15, he said, With fervent desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Now, this wasn't the actual Passover. This was the night before. 
but they were gathered together in that room and he really wanted to share this last meal with them. And then in John 13, he washes their feet and he gives them a new commandment to love one another. And then in John 14, I go to prepare a place for you and I'll send the helper who's going to help you. And you'll notice that here he is facing the roughest night of his life. And what he's focused on is how to help them get through this, how to help save these disciples. I think what comes out of this, as you're going to see as we go along, is very clearly, brothers and sisters, it's a suggestion that one of the ways to really deal with uh, things that happen in our life that might lead us into depression and frustration and anger and all these different things is to focus on saving other people, helping them, helping others, just like Jesus did. This actually helped him get through the night. John 15, he says, I'm the true vine and abide in me. You know, he's going to take care of them. I have spoken to you in John 16, and he's trying to help them understand so they will not stumble. And in John 17, he prays that famous prayer. He prays for all his disciples and for all who will believe in him. So even though he's facing crucifixion, Jesus's focus is on helping other people. So when you get to John 13 at verse 1, you're at the point where the, the feast of the Passover had come. And Jesus knows that his hour had come that he should depart from this world to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And this is the commitment that he had of trying to help his disciples. He knows his hour has come. He knows what he's going to be facing. But he's going to depart from this world and go to the Father. And this is what kept him going, is focusing on the future and that God was in control and he would take care of him. And it's something we can try to pattern our lives uh, with. And we want to follow that kind of commitment and uh, the focus that he had on helping other people. So as this night unfolds, watch how the Gospels record Jesus and what happens to Jesus and how he handles it. So in Matthew 26 at verse 47, while he was still speaking to his disciples, behold, Judas, one of the twelve, with a great multitude with swords and clubs, came from the chief priests and elders of the people. And now his betrayer had given them a sign, saying, whoever I kiss, he's the one, seize him. And immediately he went up to Jesus and said, greetings, rabbi, and kissed him. Now, you know, look at how Jesus could have reacted a lot of different ways. He could have been very angry. He could have yelled at Judas. He could have like done all kinds of things. But he says, he looks at, Jesus, at Judas and he says in verse 50, friend, why have you come? And then they laid, then they came and laid hands on Jesus and took him. So this is right at the beginning. You're starting to see the way the gospels present this. Jesus is in total control and he's not getting angry. He's not calling out vengeance. That's not what he does. He trusts that God is in control. And this is what you're going to see come out consistently through these Gospels. In John 18, Jesus, knowing therefore all things in verse 4 that would come upon him, he went forward and said to them, Whom are you seeking? And they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. So he says to them, I am he. And Judas, who betrayed him, also stood with them. And now when he said to them, I am he, they drew back and they fell to the ground. So he asked them again, whom are you seeking? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And he answered, I have told you that I am he. Now look at this. Therefore, if you seek me, let these go their way, 
you see, here's the, the good shepherd protecting the sheep. This was his focus on taking care of them. He wanted to say, right straightforward, I'm the one you're after, let the rest of these go. And that, you know, as it says there, that John records that the same might be fulfilled, which he spoke. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost none. In John 18, later on at verse 10, remember what Simon Peter did. He, he pulls out his sword, he drew it and struck the high priest's servant's ear, and he cut off his right ear. That servant's name was Melchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into the sheath. Shall I not, shall I not drink the cup which my father has given me? And then in Luke 22, what they record, what Luke records for us, is when those around him saw what was going to happen, they said to him, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus answered and said, permit even this. And he touched the ear and healed him. And you, you, you look at this, that here he is in the midst of being taken, knowing he's going to be crucified, and he reaches out and he heals an unbeliever who's come to arrest him. This is the kind of control that Jesus is under, and this is the kind of victory that he's winning. He doesn't give in to his natural temptations at all. He doesn't join Peter in, in a tendency to like try to strike out at these people and do something. You know, and I, I really think that what should have happened right then is all the people watching this should have realized he really was the Son of God. You know, he had the power to heal. Somebody just cut off an ear, and he and he reattaches the ear, and he heals the man. But this is the danger of uh, believing in a God of evil. Is when going through Mark and the readings, you'll see that there's all these references to this idea that he was doing these things by Beelzebub. And if you believe in a God of evil or some evil being that's working against God, you can write off all the good that Jesus was doing and, uh, and just make excuses for it. And that's what you see happening right here. So in Matthew 26, Jesus responds to them at this point, put your sword in its place for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. But in verse 53, look at this. Or do you not think that I cannot now pray to my father and he will provide me with more than 12 legions of angels? How then could the scriptures be fulfilled, that it must happen thus? And in that hour, Jesus said to the multitudes, Have you come out as against a, a robber with swords and clubs to take me? I sat daily with you, teaching in the temple, and you did not seize me. But all this was done, that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples forsook him and fled. So here he is saying, look it, I could defend myself. I could call on the Father. He'd give me 12 legions of angels. But look it, it's, the scriptures have to be fulfilled. And all the disciples at this point forsake him and they flee. But what Jesus is doing is he's trusting his Father. He knows God's in control. Whether the disciples stay or not, he's trusting the fact that God will take care of him. So Luke records in chapter 22 at verse 54 that having arrested him, that's Jesus, they led him and brought him into the high priest's house. But Peter followed at a distance. Now when they had kindled a fire in the midst of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat among them. And a certain servant girl seeing him sat by the fire, looked intently at him and said, this man also was with him. But he denied him and said, woman, I do not know him. Now, look at the contrast between how Jesus is handling things and how Peter handles things. And then in verse 58, after a little while, while another saw him, he said, you also are one of them. And Peter said, man, I am not. 
And then after about an hour had passed, another confidently affirmed, saying, Surely this fellow was also with them, for he's a Galilean. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you're saying. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Now, it doesn't tell us there, but I, I can't believe he's looking at Peter in such in a condemnatory way. He knew ahead of time what Peter was going to do. But he looks over him, and Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had said to him, Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. So Peter went out and wept bitterly. So while Peter is failing, here he thought he was going to die with Christ, and he's failing right off the bat, failing miserably, Jesus is winning the war. He's fighting his tendencies to sin. He doesn't give in to his natural desires. He's not afraid of what these people are going to do him. And all along the way, he's having compassion on people. Compassion on even people that were wanting to kill him and compassion on, on Peter who denied him. So then the trials occur. In John 18, here's Jesus before Annas. Remember they took Jesus to Annas first because he would have been the older man. He used to be the high priest and now is what his son-in-law is in charge Caiaphas. So the high priest then asked Jesus about his disciples and his doctrine. See what he's doing right away? He wants to find out, all right, who are your disciples and what were you teaching? And Jesus answered him, I spoke openly to the world. I always taught in the synagogues and in the temple where the Jews always meet. And in secret, I have said nothing. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me and what I said to them. Indeed, they know what I said. And when he had said these things, one of the officers who stood by Jesus struck Jesus with the palm of his hand, saying, do you answer the high priest like that? So here, it's the first time he gets hit. And Jesus answered them, if I've spoken evil, bear witness of the evil. But if well, why do you strike me? And then Anna sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. But see, even here in the midst of this, standing there on trial, and they're, you know, they're trying to like find out who his disciples are, and he's trying to protect them, and they're trying to like pry into him and find things they can, they can use against him. Jesus doesn't throw out threats, no verbal retaliation. That's not how he responds, because he's winning the war against sin. In Matthew 26, then those who had laid hold of Jesus, they lead him away to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders were assembled. So here we go. The big trial is going to begin. And Peter followed him at a distance to the high priest's courtyard. And he went and sat with the servants to see the end. Now the chief priests, the elders, and all the council sought false testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but found none. Even though many false witnesses came forward, they found none. But at last, two false witnesses came forward and said, This fellow said, I'm able to destroy the temple of God and build it in three days. And you watch, here is Jesus enduring all of this. He's watching this going on. He realized what a, what a fake it was, what a false trial, how illegal it was. And they're seeking false witnesses and somebody comes forward. But he endures all of this and he doesn't yell at them. He doesn't scream at them. He doesn't threaten any of them. He accepts the fact that these people are going to treat him like this. And that's, that's what the Gospels present. Jesus takes it all in. In Matthew 26, at verse 62, the high priest then rises and he says to him, Do you answer nothing? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus kept silent. 
The high priest answered and said to him, I put you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said to him, It is as you said. Nevertheless, I say to you hereafter, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. He tells him the truth. Then the high priest tore his clothes, saying, He spoke in blasphemy. What further need do we have of witnesses? Look, now you have heard his blasphemy. What do you think? And they answered and said, He is deserving of death. And they spat in his face. They beat him. And others struck him with the palms of their hands, saying, Prophesy to us, Christ, who is the one who struck you? But Jesus was silent to all that. The only thing he responded to was to say the truth, that he was the Christ, the Son of God. In Luke 23, then they drag him before Pilate, because now the Jews have finally realized, they've, they've organized and they've agreed on the fact he's got to die. Now they've got to convince Pilate. So in Luke 23, at verse 20, Luke 23, this should be verses 1 to 5, the whole multitude of them arose and led him to Pilate, and they began to accuse him, saying, We found this fellow perverting the nation and forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar, saying that he himself is Christ, a king. Now Jesus could have jumped in and said, Come on, guys, this is what you said before. You've changed the charges now. Now that I'm before Pilate, you've changed everything, because now you've got to justify this to a Roman governor. The Pilate asked him, saying, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him and said, It is as you say. So he testified to that. He is the king of the Jews. So Pilate said to the chief priests in the crowd, I find no fault in this man. But they were the more fierce, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee to this place. And so here he is again, having to endure false accusations, claims from the crowd about things that he was saying that weren't true, he never had said things like that. And he endures all the false accusations. He doesn't retaliate. He doesn't scream at people and yell at them. And he realizes that he's not going to change their minds. So he endures it all. But he did confess that he was the king of the Jews. And all along, you can imagine that inside him, his natural desires wanted to reach out. They wanted to yell at these people. They wanted to justify himself. But he holds it in, trusting that God's way is right. So then, Herod, Pilate sends him off to Herod, right? Because Herod was in charge of the whole Galilean area up there in the north where Jesus had spent a time, a lot of time. And this is the same Herod who had killed John. So in Luke 23, at verse 8, when Herod saw Jesus, he was exceedingly glad. For he had desired for a long time to see him because he'd heard many things about him. And he hoped to see some miracle done by him. And then he questioned him with many words. But Jesus there answered him nothing. He wasn't going to talk to this guy. This is the fellow who wouldn't stand up and, and save John. He killed John and beheaded him. He's going to answer him nothing. And then in verse 10, the chief priests and the scribes, they stood and vehemently accused him. They're yelling at him. They're claiming all kinds of false accusations. And then Herod with his men in verse 11, they treated him with contempt and they mocked him and arrayed him in a gorgeous robe. They, they mocked him. Oh, yeah, a real king you are, right? And then they sent him back to Pilate. But in all of this, do you notice how the Gospels never say anything about Jesus getting angry, Jesus retaliating, Jesus yelling at these people? Because the Gospels record the victory that Jesus won when he killed the devil. That's what they're out to do. So then Pilate takes him back. 
in Luke 23 at verse 13. And he called together the chief priests and rulers and the people and said to them, you brought this man to me as one who misleads the people. And indeed, having examined him in your presence, I find no fault in this man concerning those things of which you accuse him. Pilate realized they were all false accusations, false accusers. No, neither did Herod, for I sent him, for I sent you back to him. And indeed, nothing deserving of death has been done by him. Therefore, I'll chastise him and release him, for it was necessary for him to release one of them, uh, one to them at the feast. So Pilate admits Jesus' innocence as Jesus silently endures watching this, knowing what the crowds are going to do. So Pilate, in John 19, he takes Jesus, scourged him. The soldiers twisted a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They put on him a purple robe and they said, Hail, King of the Jews! And they struck him with their hands. And Pilate went out again and said to them, Behold, I'm bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no fault in him. So here's Jesus. He's enduring scourging and beating and humiliation and mocking, but there's no record of him complaining, of threatening or retaliating. Nothing. In Luke 23 then, they all cried out. Here's the crowd saying, Away with this man and release to us Barabbas in verse 18 who had been thrown into prison for a certain rebellion made in the city and for murder. Pilate, therefore, wishing to release Jesus again, called out to them. But they shouted, saying, Crucify him! Crucify him! And then he said to them the third time, Why? What evil has he done? I have, I have found no reason for death in him. I will, therefore, chastise him and let him go. But they were insistent, demanding with loud voices that he be crucified. And the voices of these men and of the chief priests prevailed. So Pilate gave sentence that it should be as they requested. And he released to them the one they requested, who for rebellion and murder had been thrown into prison. But he delivered Jesus to their will. And all along in the Gospels, there's absolutely no mention of any kind of verbal retaliation. No yelling and screaming from Jesus but he's trusting his God all the way and he's fighting the war in his mind that he was fighting in the garden and, and he's winning. He's winning the victory over sin and, and he's defeating this devil and putting him to death. In Luke 23, you know, here they are. They're going to crucify him and here he's walking along and a great multitude of the people followed in verse 27 and the women who also mourned and lamented. But Jesus turns to them and says, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For indeed the days are coming in which they will say, Blessed are the barren wounds that never bore and the breasts which never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things in the greenwood, what will be done in the dry? And then in verse 34, Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. See, Jesus was on his way to the Father. He knew his Father was going to raise him from the dead and that he would be with his Father forever. But the way he got there was by having compassion on these people, trying to help them get through this, help them realize what they were doing. And he feels so sorry for those that are going to be facing the terrible persecution that was coming in AD 70. Now, what really amazed me in all of this is one time when, I guess, when we were doing the readings or listening to a, a talk somewhere, and I realized both uh, all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all four Gospels, 
when they record the crucifixion, all they say is, look at Matthew, then they crucified him. Look at Mark 15, and when they crucified him. Look at Luke 23, they came to the place called Calvary, there they crucified him. And in John 19, then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his garments. There's no mention of the pain, the agony, the torture that these people did to him. The Gospels don't record this at all. Now, you've heard classes where people do this, and they go into all the details about how, how bad crucifixion was, but that's not what the Gospels record for us. They record instead the victory that Jesus was winning all along because he never gave in to sin. While they're killing him, he's killing the devil in himself and finally nails it to the pole. So in Mark 15, in verse 27, he says, With him they also crucified two robbers, one on his right and the other on his left. So the scripture was fulfilled, which said he was numbered with the transgressors. So here he is being associated with criminals, put up on the cross and crucified. But Jesus, he doesn't attempt to justify that. I think one of the, one of the criminals realized that. But he doesn't try to do that. What he does instead is he tries to help them through this and tries to convert them. And he works with them even on the cross. That's what he does. So in Mark 15, Mark records that here he is hanging on the pole. And Mark records not, not the violence, not the pain, not the agony that Jesus is going through. But he records the mental torture that Jesus was overcoming in verse 29, and those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. Likewise, the chief priests also, mocking among themselves with the scribes, said, He saved others, himself he cannot save. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, descend now from the cross that we may see and believe. And even those who were crucified with him reviled him. And here's Jesus putting up with all of this, focused on trusting his God, realizing where he was headed, and he doesn't give in to sin. And this is what the Gospels want us to understand. He's never going to give in, no matter what they do to him. They put him through all the tests you could ever imagine, and he doesn't give in to sin. You know, look how often we retaliate, brothers and sisters. People say things to us. They, they say things that, aren't, that we believe are not true, and we get falsely accused and different things. And our natural tendency is to lash out at people. We want to justify ourselves right away. But that's not the spirit you're going to see in Jesus Christ. So then in John 19, there stood by the cross of Jesus, his mother and his mother's sister in verse 25, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. And when Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing by, he says to his mother, woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her, took her to his own home. So here again, instead of recording all the pain Jesus was enduring, the, 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 the suffering he's going through, the agony of trying to breathe and what he's experiencing, the gospels show us that in the midst of all of that, he has compassion for his mother and he tries to set up his mother in a situation to look out for her good in the future. He's caring for others while he's going through his own suffering. 
So when you look back at how the Gospels record the crucifixion of Jesus, look at all the things that they don't record that we all would have put in there. I, I know what I would have put in there. I would have wanted to put in detailed descriptions of the violence and the torture done to Jesus, you know, of what, of what he went through. And, you know, this is what you should expect, brethren and sisters, if God was trying to teach us that Jesus Christ was being punished instead of us or that he was paying for our sins. You would expect to see all of that recorded, but that's not what the Gospels record. We would have thought, you know, the horrible pain he felt as the nails were driven into him. You hear people describe this. And then when the pole was dropped into the ground, that's what we would record. But that's not what the Gospels record because that's not what saves us. The graphic depictions of the agony Jesus experiences during the hours that he hung on a cross, that's what we would want to record. But that's not what the Gospels record because that doesn't save us either. And all the timeline of the energy being drained from Jesus, as slowly the life is, is just draining out of him as he's suffering and enduring. And they don't record that, brethren and sisters, because that's not what God wants us to remember. Because that doesn't motivate us to beat sin. It doesn't have the power to beat sin that what the Gospels do record have. What the Gospels record is that no matter what people did to Jesus, he doesn't give in to sin. He doesn't retaliate. He doesn't scream at people. He doesn't mistreat people, no matter what they were doing to him. And that's what God wants us to remember in the crucifixion of Christ, that we join him in a death like his, that every week we are reminded to show forth his death to sin until he comes. That's what we meet for on Sunday mornings. We don't come together to remember the violence and the torture and the pain that he endured. That doesn't change our lives. But when you look at his example of no matter what people did to him, he trusted God. He had faith in his God, and he therefore was kind and compassionate and caring and thinking of others first. That's what God wants us to remember. So be careful because, you know, a lot of times you hear in Christian churches and you hear people talk about Jesus dying instead of us. But God can't save us if that's what we believe. He didn't die instead of us. Jesus, you know, you can't, God can't save you by having Jesus tortured for us. That doesn't save us. And having Jesus punished for our sins, that's crazy because that, that presents God in such a way that, you know, he's an unjust God punishing somebody else for our mistakes. And even the idea that floats around once in a while that Jesus died to show us what sinners deserve, that isn't what the Bible presents because God never said we deserve to be crucified. When Adam and Eve sinned, God never said that in the day that you eat of it, you should be tortured and put up on a pole and killed. God never said that. And so it's not right to present the crucifixion that way. This is not the righteousness of God. And it lacks the power that we need to fight sin and destroy the devil. So Christ's death really was to destroy sin. Hebrews 2.14, I've mentioned a couple of times, 1 John 3 and 5, he was manifested to take away our sins. And 1 John 3 and 8, this was the purpose. The Son of God was manifested. He might destroy the works of the devil. And there's so many Bible references that bring this out, that that was the purpose of the death of Christ. Someone had to literally destroy sin. 
That's why an angel couldn't save us. They can't destroy sin. They don't even have the, the tendencies to sin that we have. It had to be somebody of our race. And so the Bible records in the Gospels that no matter what people did to Jesus Christ, no matter what test he was put through, he never gave in to sin. He destroyed King Sin. So when we look at the cross and we remember the death of Jesus on Sunday mornings, you know, we have to have the right perspective of what God wants us to see in this. See, the Romans and the Jews, they tortured Jesus and they killed him because they thought he deserved it. That's what they're thinking. And therefore, they would emphasize all the pain and the agony and all of that. But what God wants us to understand, brethren and sisters, what he wants us to see when we think about the, the crucifixion and the cross, he wants us to see that what him and Jesus were doing is they were killing the devil, the power of sin. The two of them were going up together and they were destroying the devil and never letting the devil win this war. And that's what they did all the way through the cross. And therefore, Jesus showed us God's righteous way to live. See, the crucifixion and, and the death of Jesus is not a negative thing. It's not something that's about punishment and about torture and all those things. What it was designed by God to do was to teach us how to live. God was trying to give us an example that we would never forget of how he wants his children to live trusting him and, and accepting the fact that he, he is in control and remembering that. And when you look at that, which one of these has the power to change your life? Which one of these is going to draw you away from sin and lead you into being slaves of God? And it's certainly when we join Jesus Christ in his death to sin. That's the one that has power. So on the cross, Jesus was not suffering, uh, you know, the punish, somebody else's punishment. That's not why God put him up on the pole. That's not what was going on. And he wasn't illustrating the punishment that sinners deserve. That isn't right. And he didn't deserve the cross because he had human nature. Sometimes, sometimes Christadelphians have gone to the other extreme and say, well, because he had human nature, he really deserved to be up there. No, that isn't right either. You see, you'll never find the words deserve and punishment used by Bible writers about the death of Jesus Christ, about our atonement. It's not about punishment, and it's not about anybody deserving that. It, that's not what God wants us to, to see in all of this. And Christ was not going through some ritual or ceremony to save us. It's not like, well, he was just the best sacrifice that anybody had ever offered, you know, that he comes along. That's not what this is about. What God was trying to do over and over again in the scriptures was to show us and teach us how to live the righteousness of God in our daily lives. That's what he had been doing all along through all the rituals, through, through circumcision, through animal sacrifice, through all of them. The, the Passover was this idea of trying to convince us to die to sin and live to righteousness. That's what God was after. See, if, if we fall into the substitutionary ideas that are out there in the churches, then you, they end up thinking Jesus died in my place as my substitute instead of me. You know, he died instead of me. He, he did it for me instead of me. Or Jesus took my place and he suffered the punishment I deserve. And they like that because therefore I get to escape all the punishment because all my sins have been borne away by Jesus Christ. That's why it's such a popular view. But Christadelphians are the few who understand that when Jesus died, 
He died to redeem himself first as our representative, as one of us. I mean, that's what God, that's all God could do at that point was save his son. And he set out to save his son. And Jesus wasn't suffering anybody else's punishment. He willingly died to show us that sin must be conquered and put to death. And we must be living to the, the will of God. That's what he set out to show us. That's what the crucifixion is supposed to represent to us. And therefore, it has power that we follow his example, that daily we take up our cross and we follow him. We are crucified with Christ and we put to death our evil desires and we live for God just like Jesus did. So representation has power. It motivates us to join with Christ in a death like his. See, all the way through the Bible, starting, I think, with Adam and Eve when they first sinned and God clothed them with garments, God must have probably killed an animal, maybe before them. And right afterwards, you find in Genesis 4 that already Cain and Abel are, are offering sacrifices. And Abel brings an animal. Because what God was trying to teach with animal sacrifice is that animal is the Messiah. He's going to have a nature like yours, these animal desires that are in you. But he's going to be without blemish. So God says, look, at you lay your hands on him. You identify with Jesus Christ, with that Messiah, and you kill that animal. You commit yourself to die to sin with him. And if you do that, then, then I can cover your sins and I will redeem you. This is what God had been trying to teach all along. But inevitably, human people want to turn it into some form of substitution where the animal dies instead of me. That's what they liked. But God was trying to teach the work that he would accomplish through Jesus Christ if we identify with him. See, you'll get the misconceptions in animal sacrifice. People come along and say, well, the animal died instead of me. And that's what happened. An animal dies instead. But you've got to remember, this is representing the great work God would accomplish in Jesus Christ. And if you think the animal died instead of me, then you transfer that over and say, well, Jesus Christ died instead of me. Or you think the animal died to show me what I deserve, some kind of violent death. And then you end up thinking, well, is that why Jesus died on the cross, to show me that I deserve a violent death? No, because God's not trying to punish us. He's not trying to hammer us down and drive us in the ground and keep telling us that you deserve to die, you deserve to die. What he wants to do, brethren and sisters, is teach us how we're supposed to live. So remember that the animal represented Jesus Christ, and he died to show us the way back to God. And the way back is by putting sin to death and doing the will of God. Now, if you think that's sort of far out and that I'm, I'm off base, you look in the New Testament as you're reading through it, watch how the New Testament writers refer to the sacrifice of Christ. Do they mention punishment? Do they mention what we deserve, that sinners deserve death? Do they mention those kind of things? No. What you see instead is like 1 Peter 2. But when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. For to this you were called because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps, who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth, who, when he was reviled, did not revile in return. When he suffered, he didn't threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously. 
See, there's that trusting God aspect that you see in the Gospels. Who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree? That, that what? That we, that we go free? No, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness. By his stripes you were healed. We are spiritually healed because he has the power to draw us, brethren and sisters, from a life of slavery to sin to where we become slaves of God, as Paul says in Romans 6, we become slaves of God and slaves of righteousness because we take up our cross daily and we follow him. So when Paul covers this in Romans 6, I love the way Paul deals with this because he never mentions animal sacrifice. He never even mentions sacrifice at all when he's explaining the atonement. Instead, he tells you exactly what it meant. Here's what we were supposed to learn. So in verse 3 of Romans 6, Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. See, if we are baptized into that death, into his death to sin, then we rise out of the waters committed to walking in a new way of life. This has power to change our lives. We're not baptized into his death of some violent death of torture and crucifixion. We're baptized into the death that he died when he destroyed the devil. For in verse 5, If we've been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. We've been crucified with him because we are now joining with him in his death to sin. We have committed to walk out of baptism in a newness of life. Slaves of God, no longer slaves of sin. Or you look at how Paul deals with this in, in 2 Corinthians 4 at, at verse 7. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. We are hard-pressed on every side, yet not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. See all these things that happened to Paul? All the, the torture he was going through? In verse 10, always caring about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our bodies. In our body, for we who live are always delivered to death for Jesus' sake, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is working in us, but life in you. We have to. Paul expects us to manifest the life of Jesus. So when the Apostle Paul covers this in Hebrews, and he talks about the fact that Jesus, that even the law had predicted that God would provide better sacrifices. That's the word that Paul uses when he speaks about Jesus coming. But when Paul covers it in Romans, he covers it without the language of sacrifices and offerings. And instead, he says we must be united together in the likeness of his death. That he says in Romans 6 that he died unto sin. That's the victory that Jesus Christ won. So you've got to remember when we're looking at the cross of Christ, when there's crucifixion, he's the reality that all these sacrifices were based on. They were all shadows of the real work that God would do 
when finally God developed a son who would totally destroy the devil. So that's what Jesus Christ has accomplished. So the message of the cross really is the power of God for those who are being saved, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1 at verse 18. Because Jesus declared the righteousness of God. He declared God right for requiring us to put sin to death. The death of Jesus demonstrated God's love. It wasn't punishment. It wasn't about what we deserve. It was the love of God poured out, as Paul covers in Romans 5, how far God was willing to go to change our lives so he could save us into his family forever. This is a love-based relationship that we get with God, not fear-based. Because as, as John says, that perfect love casts out fear. Why? Because fear has to do with punishment. And if we're so focused on that punishment, brethren and sisters, we don't see what God has really done for us in the death of his son. It was his love that was poured out because he was trying to teach us how to live. And this has the power to motivate us to join with Christ daily in a death like his, his death to strength, his death to sin. And this was the strongest motivation God could ever give humans to join God in the war against sin. He sent his son and he want, you, you get to watch his son go through all the things that they did to him, and he never gave in to sin. So what death do we proclaim when we eat the bread and we drink the wine? I hope we're not just remembering all the violence that was done to Jesus and all the pain that he endured and all the suffering that he went through. What we have to remember, brethren and sisters, is what Jesus did to sin. He killed it. If we want to remember his death to sin, he never gave in. God's power was at work in him, and he beat it down and destroyed it. And that's what he has asked us to do, to be crucified with Christ. Now, look, at this class in no way minimizes the suffering Jesus went through for us. I realize what he went through was terrible. But you can, you can look at all the pain and the agony that he endured for us. But let's be honest, many humans have suffered torturous, painful deaths. Jesus was not necessarily the worst. People have been burned at the stake. They've been tortured for, for days and, and weeks and, and months. But those torturous deaths can't save us. That doesn't save us, brethren and sisters. What saves us is when we identify with a Messiah, the Son of God, who destroyed sin, put sin to death, and we identify with him, we lay our hands on him, and we commit ourselves to die with him to sin. That's what has the power to save us. So that we can say like Paul, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. It's all a positive message of the love of God, about the faith that that can develop within us, and the power that that has to change our lives so that God can give us eternal life with him. And if we trust God and we let him do it, brethren and sisters, he will shape us into the image of Jesus Christ, the same way he shaped his son into his own image. But it comes through trials. It comes through suffering. We have to experience those things because like Jesus Christ, we will learn obedience by the things that we suffer. 
suffer. So let God's power through the power of the cross motivate us in the days to come to die daily to sin and to live to God like Jesus Christ our Lord. And when we take the bread and the wine on, on Sunday mornings, let's think about his death to sin. He never gave in. He trusted God all the way. And look at what he was thinking about, helping other people. That's what he was focused on. And we need to be like him. And we will be saved by his life. And that's the power of the cross, a power that can be at work within our lives. So thank you all for listening. Thank you for listening to the Good Christadelphian Talks podcast. We hope this talk helped you in your walk. If you would like to hear more, please subscribe for new episodes and leave a review in Apple Podcast or whichever service you are using to help more people find the show when they search for it. If you enjoyed this particular talk, please share it with someone who you think might enjoy it as well. For show notes on the talk you just listened to, visit our show page at anchor.fm gct or check the show notes section of your podcast player. Please share your thoughts on the talk from this week on our Facebook or Instagram pages where we are at Good Christadelphian Talks, on Twitter where we are at GCT underscore podcast, or leave a comment on our YouTube channel where these talks are posted as well. If you know of a great talk, we want to know about it too. Send a suggestion to our email at goodchristadelphiantalks at gmail.com or message us on any of our social media accounts. Thank you for listening. God bless and talk to you next week.